This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Hey guys, uh, how are we? Uh, Arnaldo here, lead pastor of Anchor Church uh, Southwest, and it is a joy to be here and open up the word again in your homes uh, or in the park, wherever you're able to be. Um, uh, We're excited to be together again, even in this format of uh, digital church. Uh, Special welcome for those who are joining us for the very first time here, Um, and welcome to our our whole family, uh, those at Anchor City and at uh, Anchor Southwest. We've made it. We're here. We're at the end of Paul's majestic letter to the churches in Ephesus. We've learned a lot, and it's been an absolute joy coming up under the Word of God together. And we preached through Ephesians so that we would be able to comprehend and respond to the apocalypse of Jesus. And if you haven't heard that before, if that's strange language to you, apocalypse really just means unveiling. It's not talking about uh, sort of the end of the world that we see in uh, movies and as such. It's, it's speaking about the unveiling of Jesus. And the things that we've covered is that in Christ we have a new identity. Uh, that our identity isn't something that we achieve, uh, but it's something that we receive. Uh, Paul talks about us being sons and daughters of God. And then we also learn that the two most powerful words in Scripture are but God. That our situation may look bleak, but God's grace shines so bright in the darkest of nights, in the dead of night. We also learn that the cross obliterates not just the alienation between us and God, but the alienation between us and us. We learn that the gospel is not just a religious reality, but a social one, a political one. It's not just a disembodied religious one. We also learn that the sheer existence of the church, even in its weakness, and and maybe especially in its weakness, is a sign proclaiming the victory of God over the powers, that the church itself is a sign of hope in and for the world. And then we learn that there are dimensions of God's love, and this may have been one of my favorite sermons that I've ever preached, uh, that there are dimensions of God's love, the breadth, the depth, the height, the length that we cannot experience apart from deep communion with one another. We learn that if we're ever going to grow up, if we're ever going to grow up into everything that God has for us, we need to maintain the unity of the faith together. I want to remind you that every single you, Y-O-U, in the book of Ephesians is plural. We were invited to take off our old humanity and put on Christ, thereby fulfilling our true humanity. We learned a couple weeks ago that to follow Jesus, what what it means to follow Jesus is to walk a cruciform life of light that pushes back the darkness in our lives and in the world. And finally, we learned that the gospel revolutionizes. We learned this last week together, that the gospel revolutionizes the way that we relate to those who our culture says are beneath us. It's been a wild ride with Paul. And I'm excited about tying this up for us as we look toward the end of chapter 6 today as Paul employs some of the strongest militaristic imagery to help us live faithfully during the present evil age. But before we do that, let me pray. Father, we thank you again uh, for your goodness to us. We thank you that you have brought us here, uh, Lord, to gather together as a people, as your people. Uh, And I pray that you would help me to forget the things now that are not going to be helpful for your people. Help me to remember the things that will be. Uh, We do this all for your name's sake, for your glory, for your fame, for your acclaim. 
and for our joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. There's something weird about preaching through a whole book of the Bible. Um, and every week, I would ask myself this question. What is the whole point? What's the whole point? As I've sat down to prepare over these ancient texts, I would ask myself, what even is the point? And every single time I walk away with Paul's words coming out of my heart from Colossians chapter 1, which says this, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And so my heart and my desire for every single one of you is that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowing and that you would wake up to, the, to that love and respond and walk worthy of the gospel. So if you know anything, if you want to know anything about anything, about why we do this, about why I've done this, it's for that. That you would be continually filled with the Spirit, that you would grow into the full stature of maturity in Christ, that you would see all of life through the lens of the gospel, that you would be able to protect your mind, that you would be able to steward your resources, that you would honor Christ with your body, that you would be liberal as hell with your wallets, dethroning mammon. And my heart has been with Paul, and it's this, that you would stand against these evil things in this present age that cause division, dehumanization, and disorder. Because that's exactly Paul's final call to the Ephesian churches today. And that will be our final call in this series, and it's this. Our battle is against the powers and the principalities who seek to deform any benign and even good thing into a defining and ultimate reality. And what that does, it thereby it, it divides us, it dehumanizes us, and it de disorders our humanity. Now, I want to give some qualifications before we, we jump in. And I noticed that this may be uh, the longest sermon that I've ever preached, so, so strap in, uh, uh, get some snacks if you need to, because we're in for a bumpy ride here. Before we jump in into what Paul teaches in this final section, I want to do some reorientating for us and, and a couple of, I want to give us a couple working definitions so that we can think rightly about the text. And we also need to be aware of what we bring to this text. Some of us may have grown up like, like me in, in homes and or, and or religious contexts that believed that there was a demon behind every rock. And I've been part of churches where that was taught, where even if the sound system wasn't working or if the lights weren't working, it was the devil. And we would, you know, cast demons out of the PA system. And it's like, well, uh, you maybe should have just rostered on a production team. But, but regardless, now I'm not, and I'm not denying, I'm not denying that there are evil spirits, as we'll, we'll discuss. I'm not denying that there are evil spirits that can and do affect our reality but never to the point where that diminishes our agency and our responsibility. And so I've heard it said that the devil made me cheat on my husband. It's like, mm, Narcissus, he may have very well had a part in the mess going down, but never in such a way that it eliminates your agency and your responsibility to be obedient to Jesus, ever. That's just bad theology. But it's equally bad theology to give in to the bad fruit of our 17th century enlightenment thinking, which set out to get rid of 
anything that was non-material. And what that has done, it set off a chain reaction of trying to understand what Paul speaks about here purely in terms of the psychological or the naturalistic. And so it's not so much that there's a demon behind every rock, but there's no demons at all now today. Biblical scholar Clinton E. Arnold, he notes this. He says, there is a distinct danger for Western Christians to discount or minimize the reality of supernatural opponents. To do so makes us more vulnerable to their attacks by causing us to be less vigilant, less reliant on prayer, less dependent on God, and less dependent on spiritually gifted fellow believers. So we would do well to avoid both errors. On the one hand, this anti-supernaturalistic bent that our wider culture has discipled us into. And on the other, this type of supernaturalism that diminishes our agency and responsibility to respond to Jesus in obedience. But the reality is this, that there is a real enemy that we are at war with, as Paul will indicate as we read. So I want us to jump in here. Ephesians chapter 6 from verse 10. Finally, Paul says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the scheme of the devil, the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is an extension of everything that Paul wrote about in the previous five chapters. This is not something just new. This is a logical continuation. It is all connected. That if we're going to be faithful to Jesus in this age, then we need to be what? We need to be strong in the Lord. But I want you to notice that it's not our strength. In the same way, you would remember last week, in the same way that children's obedience in the previous passage is not to be located in any type of social hierarchy or ranking, but their obedience is to be located where? In the Lord. In the same way, we're commanded to be strong in the Lord with the strength of his might. And Paul is being emphatic here. He's he's talking about this vast strength that God has, this inexhaustible strength that we can actually draw from. And he does this because he knows how crushing a command can be like be strong, if we feel like we need to be strong in and of ourselves. It can be debilitating. I want you to remember that Paul at this point, he's writing this from prison. Having already been through so much physical and psychological trauma, he's no foreigner to weakness. Paul is the apostle of weakness. Because paradoxically, it's, it's in weakness. It's in weakness in our admitting that we are not strong, in our giving up this false idea, this false self that says that we are strong in and of ourselves. It's in that that we become strong in the Lord. And what does this being strong in the Lord look like? Is it something that we do? Is it something that's done to us? And as most things with God and humanity, it is a beautiful paradox, this mystery. We're commanded to be strong. That's a command, right? That's an imperative that is saying, do something, be strong in the Lord. And that means that we actually have something to do, even though it doesn't rest on us. We're not passive participants in this battle. Because we not only need to wake up to the apocalypse of Jesus, but we need to wake up to this apocalypse of this fight that we are in. 
We fool ourselves when we don't give our enemy his due credit. You know, Peter talks about Satan this way. He talks about Satan being like a roaring lion prowling around the earth, seeking, waiting someone for someone who he can devour. Now, I, I don't know about you. I've, I've never seen a lion. I mean, I, I, I've said this before. Uh, I'm good in the hood, but I'm not good in the woods. I've never seen a lion in, in the wild. Uh, I'm even scared of getting too close to that enclosure, you know, at the zoo. Uh, I don't do well with wild animals, and I can't even imagine what it would feel like, what it would look like to come up against, not an, uh, an encaptured lion in the zoo, but a, a fierce free lion, the fear that would pulsate through every square inch of our bodies. And this is the way scripture speaks about this ancient serpent. The enemy has schemes and plans. And while he's not all-knowing or all-powerful like God, this is not an equal match here, he is nevertheless not to be trifled with. Lynn Kohick is one of my favorite biblical expositors. She says this about the devil. Paul, she says, is deadly serious about the potential damage the devil can do to believers and the serious nature of the battle. And so we need to wake up to this reality that Paul is about to paint, to put on this whole, the whole armor of God that we might be able to what? To stand against the schemes of the devil. And Paul commands them to, to do this, and we have to ask the question, why? And it's, it's plain as day here. It's so that we can stand, so that we can stand against the schemes of the slander of the devil. And we need to pause here for a moment and just notice a few things. First, there is a devil. There is a malevolent being who is out to destroy us. And second, he has schemes. He has plans. He has studied us. Even though he's not, he's not all-knowing, he has studied us. One of, one of my favorite preachers, Eric Mason over in Philadelphia, he says that the devil is the greatest sociologist, greatest anthropologist, greatest psychologist. He knows how we tick. He has schemes. There are real malevolent beings in the universe whose whole purpose, since defecting from the council of heaven, are to bring about division dehumanization and disorder into our lives. And we need to get that. We need to understand that, that there are forces that can and do affect our world in both overt and covert ways. But because, but because they register in our worldview in one key, the key of the exorcist or paranormal activity, which we take now for a bit of a joke, I mean, we pay money to go see these things, we don't pick them up. We don't pick up their schemes when they apply them in a different key. And Paul fills this out a little more, uh, what we are up against in the following verse when he said, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. I want you to notice something here, that your neighbor is not your real enemy. Although it may seem that way, and that's what Paul need, and that's this is why Paul needs to mention it, your spouse is not your enemy. Your kids, your boss, your boyfriend, they are not your enemy. That's, that's not where the deepest battles take place. But all we know and all we see is that they are our enemy, that we do wrestle against 
flesh and blood. They, they are, in fact, our enemy. We fight wars and there's plenty of flesh and blood to go around. We lock up flesh and blood criminals. We Twitter bomb those that we disagree with. Surely Trump is the enemy or Biden is the enemy or Gladys is or ScoMo is, or maybe it's ourselves. It's our parents, our biology, our psychological frame of mind. And we live with such a thin view of reality that once our culture has gotten rid of the devil, we must now somehow demonize something. We have to vilify someone or some group. Someone needs to be the devil now. But Paul reminds us that that's not, the entire, that's not the entire picture. Because once you have had the apocalypse of Jesus, once you see this, <clears throat> the war is never truly against flesh and blood. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against what? Against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, this may seem uh, at first glance that this is usually where, where we go to in, in, in the book of Ephesians when we talk about cosmic powers and authorities and rulers, but this has been a feature all throughout of Paul's letter. In Ephesians 1.21, they pop up where uh, Paul talks about the ascension of Jesus from Acts chapter 1, saying that Jesus was exalted above what? Every rule and every authority and power and dominion. They show up in Ephesians 2.2 where Paul speaks of the prince of the power of the air. Again, in Ephesians 3.10 where Paul talks about how the church is God's sermon to those rulers and those authorities in the heavenly places. Again, in chapter 4.27 where Paul speaks about not allowing to give an opportunity to who? To the slander to the devil in our relationships, allowing anger and bitterness to set in. And again, now in our text. So what are these things? What are these rulers and these authorities, dominion, prince of power, uh, of the air, the devil, cosmic powers? What uh, are they ways to all speak about the same thing? Are they different entities altogether? But in order to understand Paul's theology of powers, uh, I, I want to guide us here um, in, in a bit of a, a detour through, through Paul's cosmology. And all that means really is Paul's way of viewing the world. See, you have the heavens. And the heavens are uh, where Elohim are populated. It's populated by this being called the Elohim. It's another way of saying spiritual beings. And then you have the earth which is populated by earthly beings, by Adams, the, the dirt people, the, the dirty people, the earthy people. And right in the middle, you have this place called Eden, the Garden of Eden. And this was the place where heaven and earth met. And as we know, God in his wisdom, while not needing to, he decides to rule both heaven and both earth through other lesser created beings. He desires to rule with and through humanity in the earthly realm. But what about the heavenly realm? And when we normally think about the heavenly realm, we think about there's God and then there's angels. And that's about all that we think. We think there's God and angels. But the Bible paints a picture that's a little more nuanced, <clears throat> a little more complex than simply angels. The scripture speaks of God having a divine counsel, speaks of creatures that are called cherubim and others that are called seraphim. But we often miss this when we are reading the scriptures. You can read this up. I'm not going to go through all these texts right now, but uh, scriptures like Psalm 82, Job 1, Job 2, Ezekiel 1. But as we know, 
<clears throat> there's this tragic incident in the Garden of Eden where humanity decides to defect from God's plan. Take a shortcut. And they listen to the voice of the, 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 the deceiver, the father of lies, the slander. And it's at this point that the heavens and the earth are, are rendered asunder. They're, they're taken apart. And usually when we think about the fall, we think about this one place, Genesis 3. We think about that. That's where it all went down. That's where it all happened. But that's not the only place where there is a fall narrative in Scripture. Genesis 6 speaks about the sons of God, another word for these spiritual beings, most likely from the divine council that also defected from God's rule, and they fell. Deuteronomy 32 spells out the way that God apportioned humanity to these various sons of God so that they rule over particular places and peoples. And Ezekiel 28 is a fascinating, fascinating piece of literature, fascinating piece of scripture as it speaks about the fall of Satan himself in the guise of the king of Tyre. And so it's not just humanity who defects from partnering with God, but the heavenly beings also defect from partnering with God. And it's these fallen heavenly beings that Paul is thinking about when he talks about cosmic rulers, powers, principalities who have real influence in the way the world disintegrates into chaos, disintegrates into violence, war, division, and dehumanization. There are real sentient beings in the universe that occupy this heavenly realm that can affect this earthly realm. And that's why we're called to take this aggressive militaristic posture in order to be faithful to Jesus in this evil age. And it's because these real sentient beings are hostile spiritual forces that take up residence. They take up residence in individuals and in institutions and in ideologies, and their MO is to deceive humanity, to divide humanity, to dehumanize humanity. And so Paul is thinking about these hostile spiritual forces, but not only these. Paul also includes benign human institutions like government officials, economies, religious institutions as operating as powers that keep order. These things that aren't bad within themselves, but these hostile powers that have fallen, they inhabit and they co-opt the very things that God created for good. Colossians 1.16 says this, For in him all things were created, things in the heavens and things on earth, things visible and things invisible whether thrones or dominion or whether rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And so these good things can become and do become toxic to humanity as they are inhabited and guided by these fallen spiritual beings. And even as one day these human structures and institutions will be redeemed to serve God's intended purposes, for now we wage war. And it's against these rulers, against these authorities, against these cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places that we wage war. And so Paul gives us this, this imagery, this armor of God in the following verses. And But before we get into the actual armor, I want us to notice a couple things here as I read from verse 13. Follow with me. Therefore, Paul says, Take up the whole armor of God 
that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to what? To stand. Four times in a few verses, Paul calls us to stand. That the reason why he is giving us these instructions is so that we would stand. That we would withstand, literally stand against the schemes of the enemy. And therefore, verse 14, stand therefore. Four times he's calling us to stand. Our goal as we explore spiritual warfare and the armor of God and the powers and the principalities and the enemy and the ancient serpent is, anchor church, that we would stand. But this standing doesn't happen alone. In fact, as I've pastored over the years, one of the primary schemes of the enemy is to divide, to divide and conquer. If the Satan can get you to separate yourself, from a biblical community, then the battle is already half won. The imagery of this armor that Paul is drawing upon is largely frontline defensive imagery. And if you've seen the movie Troy, then you have an idea of what I mean, whereby every soldier's life depended on his neighbor's shield just as much as it depended on his own. And this created what was, what was called the, uh, the, the testudo formation or tortoise formation, where it was virtually impenetrable. And it looks something like this, where uh, each person would interlock their, uh, each shoulder would interlock their, uh, um, uh, their shields, and they would become virtually impenetrable. Alone, you were vulnerable. But together, the Romans took over the known world. And while we may squirm or feel uncomfortable at such fierce or harsh militaristic imagery, Paul is trying to get us to understand the danger that we are in and is encouraging us to fight and stand. Because remember, our battle is against powers and principalities who seek to deform anything, anything, so that we would be divided, so that we would be dehumanized, and that we would be disordered. And so Paul calls, so Paul's call is to put on the full armor of God so that we may stand. And these are the particular articles that he gives us. First is the belt of truth. Jesus calls the slanderer, the devil, he calls him the father of lies in John chapter 8. And one of his primary schemes is to deceive. Deceive us into believing lies about us and about God's character. And so Paul calls us to gird our loins, uh, King James Version puts it, to gird our loins, to protect ourselves with the truth. The truth that God is good. The truth that God loves his creation. You know, I wonder what problems, I wonder what problems would be solved if we believed this truth. That God sees you. That God knows you that God desires you, that God likes you, that God loves you. Imagine, imagine the ways that we wouldn't incessantly search 
for this love in all the wrong places, in attention, in the bottle, in sex, in religion, in church growth. Just imagine if we believed just that one truth, the problems of this world that would be solved. G.K. Chesterton said this, that every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. It's like, uh, I think I know what he's looking for, and it's not God. That makes no sense. But G.K. was right. Every single broken way that we attempt to meet this deeply ingrained and good need that we have to be seen and known is love and loved is met in Jesus. But in our brokenness, we look to other things, things that actually deform our humanity. And if the enemy can get your eyes off that truth, if he can deceive you to not believe that, then game over. We will look for that any which way we know how. And so you need to know this, that when you are speaking truth, you are waging war. And this is why good music that reminds us of gospel truth is so important. It's a beautiful thing to be reminded of deep gospel truths, of God's goodness and character, and to have that sung over you. That even when you don't believe these truths in the moment, we place ourselves under their power. That even when we are that paralytic friend who can't get ourselves to Jesus, we can have friends who carry us into his presence. Spiritual warfare is choosing truth over lies. The second part of the armor is the breastplate of righteousness. Now, Paul's imagination, we need to understand, is soaked in the Hebrew scriptures. In Isaiah 59, God himself, Yahweh, is seen as putting on righteousness as a breastplate. Similarly, Paul is commanding the Ephesians, the Ephesians to do the same. But when we think about righteousness, we normally think about it in almost exclusively personal or individualistic terms. Righteousness in our kind of social imagination is about doing right things in a moral sense. And while that absolutely means that, the words in Hebrew and in the word group of, in Greek that we translate as righteousness in English have broader connotations. This can also be understood as putting on justice on our chest. That is righteousness that is faced outward toward the oppressed as our breastplate. It's not just a moral category, but it is also a social category. It's the way that we come up against the systems and the institutions that the powers and the principalities have distorted beyond what can be called humane. Whether it's corrupt politicians and policies that keep people oppressed and in endemic poverty or institutions like slavery that we spoke about last week or the pornographic industrial complex that is such a major source of sex trafficking and abhorrent dehumanization in our world today. We not only fight for personal morality, but against corrupt institutions and practices. That's what it means to put on the breastplate of righteousness to partner with God in correcting the evils of this present age that are animated by the powers and the principalities. Spiritual warfare means that we resist being formed in the ways of darkness, that we strive for personal morality as well as corporate 
justice. But it's not only those things, but we are to put on our feet uh, uh, the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Here, the Ephesians are asked to put on the readiness that's given to us by the gospel of peace. And Paul wants us to understand that the good news of Jesus is one where the primary word is one of God graciously offering peace and not war. And it's this good news that gives us what we need on our feet to be sure-footed in the heat of battle. The reality that now Jesus himself is our peace. And this is good news. And this good news is never, this good news is never to be used as a weapon of war against others because we remember that our battle is what? Not Not against flesh and blood. And yet we see this. We've even been complicit in this, in seeing and sharing a gospel, the gospel as a message of damnation, a message of war, a message of condemnation. When we believe that the cross changes God's heart toward us rather than simply reveals it, we will use the gospel to coerce and to condemn. It's spiritual warfare. It is proclaiming uh, to the already defeated powers and principalities to be firmly established in the good news of this gracious God. Spiritual warfare is finding your sure footing in the good news of Jesus that brings peace. And the next one, the second to last one, is this shield of faith that Paul speaks about. Now, this shield of faith, or in other words, this trust or allegiance will protect us from the ways that the devil will attack us. The imagery here is of being under constant fire. You know, what was interesting was that Roman shields going into battle were soaked in water. So uh, Roman shields uh, were either uh, made of metal or or wood, but they were overlaid with, uh, with leather and they were soaked in water so that when the enemy would shoot uh, fiery darts or fiery arrows, the whole shield wouldn't catch on fire. It's akin, uh, uh, it's akin to the instructions that I remember receiving as a kid. So as a kid, uh, I remember in grade school, I was in year maybe three or four, and some firefighters came to visit the school. And they told us, this is what you need to do if there's ever a fire in the school or in your home. What you need to do is uh, sort of drench a blanket or your doona uh, in water and then safely walk out of the home. Now, that's not me telling you what to do. This uh, advice is 30 years old at this point, but nevertheless, you get the point. That it's our trust in Jesus, not in ourselves, not in systems, not in politics, not in economics, not in a system of thought or an ideology. It is our allegiance, our faith, our trust in Jesus that extinguishes the fiery darts of the enemy. Spiritual warfare is waged when we believe and we trust and we align ourselves with the finished work of Christ over and against anything else that the powers would have us look for and look to for our enoughness. I said that was the second to last, but there's still two more. The helmet of salvation. The helmet, the helmet was one of the last pieces of armor that a warrior would actually put on. It was heavy and cumbersome and uncomfortable, but was one of the most important pieces of protection. And so one of the most important things that we could do to protect ourselves against the real enemy is to protect our minds with the reality of our salvation. This is David crying out in Psalm 42, 11, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? 
Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. To take on salvation as a helmet is to take on God himself as your protector, as your helmet, as your vindicator. And so when the devil comes knocking at your door and he brings your case file to you and he shows you your sin and he shows you the ways that you have been an idolater, the ways that you have lusted, the ways that you have stolen, the ways you have lied, the ways you have cheated, the way you have shirked your responsibilities, the way you have become an addict, the way you have been complicit in systems of corruption, when the accuser, when the slander, when the enemy, when the Satan, when he comes to you and he inflicts you with your old humanity and he shows you even the text, he shows you Jesus' very words that you will be held accountable for every syllable that you have ever uttered. And all you know to say is what every person in scripture has ever said when they encountered the holiness of God. Woe is me. I am un- I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. Woe is me. You put on your helmet of salvation and you speak back to that devil. I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I have been snatched from hell. I have been clothed in Christ himself. I have been forgiven, devil. I have been seated with him in the heavenlies. I am no longer my own. I am his. I have been redeemed. I was once blind, but now I see. And you have no jurisdiction here because I have the helmet of my salvation on my head. I am not what I should be, but I'm not what I used to be. I'm blood-bought, I'm redeemed, I am saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. Truth is on my lips, justice is on my breastplate, the gospel of peace is on my feet, and I pick up my shield of faith. I now have an advocate, now in heaven, who is forever interceding for me, be gone. Spiritual warfare means that we have the reality of God's salvation protecting our minds. And when he comes close, and he will come close, we pick up the sword of the Spirit. Now this sword that Paul speaks about here is a short sword. And it is a sword that was used for close contact battle. And Paul is saying that the sword that we use is not made of bronze, it's not made of iron, but of the very words that come out of the mouth of God. And this is exactly what we see Messiah Jesus doing in the wilderness. You would remember that when the devil came at him sideways, trying to tempt him to take a shortcut to glory, what did Jesus do? He had the words of God on his lips. That was his sword that relinquished the fiery darts of the enemy. And so having scripture, not only at arm's length, but within your heart, is key to fighting this fight. We don't want to underemphasize this reality that knowing scripture, knowing doctrine, knowing uh, theology, the way scripture works together is not a dusty enterprise, but one that is uh, uh, that one that when it is matched with a desire to do this truth lights our lives on fire. It's truth put to work. So when you open up your Bible 
and you're seeking to be conformed to the mind and the will of God, what you are doing, you are, you are committing the highest act of treason according to this present evil age. We are refusing and we will continue to refuse to believe the lie that we are smarter than God. Spiritual warfare means that we hold the word of God, the sword of the spirit, not only in our hands, but in our hearts and on our lips. Because the battle is against powers and principalities who seek to deform any benign and even good thing into a defining and ultimate reality, thereby dividing us, dehumanizing us, and disordering our humanity. And if we ask Paul how, how do we go about donning this armor of God? Paul tells us, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and all supplication. And this is the final analysis as we wrap up this series in the book of Ephesians. That the way in which we engage the powers and the principalities is not by going on a demon or heresy hunt. But the primary battleground is our own personal and corporate life of prayer. That's the final analysis. We fight demons. We fight the prince of the power of the air. We fight these powers that would seek to divide and dehumanize and distort. We fight them in prayer. We don the, uh, the full armor of God as we pray. We don't do this by incantations. We don't do this by magic. We don't do this even by picking up a physical sword or bombing an abortion clinic or using the tactics of our fallen age. We do this by speaking truth. We do this by living justly. It's knowing the gospel. It's trusting Jesus. It's knowing that you are saved by grace. It's having the word of God on your lips. That is how we fight. That is how we stand up to the devil. And all of this is made possible because we are fighting enemies that have already been dethroned. The devil knows that his day is through. The powers know, they know that their day is coming. Let me tell you why they know. Because in Acts chapter 1, when this cloud rolled up to pick up Jesus like a stretched limo, I mean, you can imagine if you were there and the, the disciples are there and Jesus is teaching them and then this cloud just descends out of heaven and picks him up. And he is ascending through the heavens. And you can imagine what is happening when the prince of the power of the what? Of the air is seeing this. When they thought that he was defeated. When they saw him in the grave decaying. A few days later, he is rising and ascending. And 40 days later, he ascends to the right hand of God. The devil knows that his day is through. Paul says that if the powers knew, if the powers knew what would happen in three days, they would have never killed him. But now they know. It's the greatest gotcha in human or cosmic history. Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That now we get to be incorporated with him. And today is the day of salvation. 
And so if you don't know Jesus as king, if you haven't given your allegiance to Jesus, if you're having your eyes supernaturally opened even now to his goodness, to his grace, to the opportunity of taking up your true humanity, your true and deepest self in Jesus. If you are ready to pledge allegiance to Jesus, all you have to do is believe in your heart and confess with your lips these three words. Jesus is Lord. And while that is going to take a lifetime of working into your life and, and having it work out through every area of your life, we would love to be a community to help you and to guide you through that. So would you please let us know uh, by hitting a button somewhere around me uh, or requesting prayer. And, and a final word to, to our church family, to Anchor, it's been an absolute pleasure opening up the scriptures over these past few months. And I, I wanna finish as you get communion ready, I wanna finish with Paul's final words to the Ephesian Christians in this book. Peace be to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. And with those words, may we take the cup and the bread as a visceral reminder of the love that God displayed for us on the cross, a reminder of the shame that he bore on the cross, a reminder that as soul-wrenching as it was for him to take upon himself the sin of the world, he didn't do it reluctantly. He did it, Hebrews 12 says, for the joy that was set before him, his people, his bride, his church. Bless you, and we love you.